Hello and welcome back to KHN's What the Health. I'm your host, Julie Rovner, Chief Washington Correspondent for Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're here to bring you the latest in news about health policy from the White House, Capitol Hill, federal agencies, and the states. We're taping today on Thursday, August 8th at 10.30 a.m. As always, news happens fast and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So here we go. Today, we are joined by Margot sanger Katz of the New York Times. Good morning. Alice Olstein of Politico. Hello. And we welcome back to the table my KHN colleague, Mary Agnes Carey. Thanks. Great to be here. Our weekly reminder, if you want to see us as well as hear us, an edited version of the podcast is now on the cable channel Newsy at 11 a.m. Eastern every Sunday. Also, if you have questions you'd like us to answer, this is the last call for our Ask Us Anything episode coming up next week. Tell us what you'd like us to answer at whatthehealth, all one word, at kff.org. So I think we have to start with the news of the week, the continuing epidemic of gun violence in the U.S. I want to talk about the health implications. Uh, Let's start with the idea espoused by the president and many top Republicans in Congress that most of mass shooters are clinically mentally ill. That's not necessarily what statistics show, right? Margo, you've written a a good bit about this. Yeah, I think there are some examples and some prominent examples of mass shooters who appear to have had mental illness, um, either that had been diagnosed before the event or in many cases actually was diagnosed afterwards. But there also are a lot of mass shooters who do not have any diagnosed mental illness. And so I think it's a natural impulse to say when someone does something as terrible and horrific and hard to understand as killing a lot of people, that they must be crazy in some way. But actually, there are lots of reasons why people commit acts of violence, and that may not be due to mental illness. It's important to get this question right, because there's a lot of political rhetoric arguing that the solution to uh, eliminating these kinds of mass shooting events is to try to do something about either mental health screening or mental health treatment. And I just want to say right at the top of what I'm going to say next, that those are really important things to do anyway. Uh, mental health is important. Mental illness is a serious problem in this country. And I think that people who have mental illness often do not get a diagnosis as early as they would like, and they often don't get access to the best forms of treatment. So there are lots of reasons why we ought to think about how and if we should improve our mental health care system. But it doesn't seem that reducing mass shootings will be a likely outcome of uh, such a set of policy changes. And there are a number of reasons why. One is what I just said. Many people who commit these acts of violence um, are not mentally ill. Um, Another is that we don't have particularly good treatments that seem to prevent mentally ill people who do go on to commit acts of violence from committing those acts. So even if you could find that person, uh, it might be difficult to prevent them from becoming violent. Uh, We also are really bad at predicting who is going to commit an act of violence. So even among people who have uh, contact with the mental health care system, maybe you have a diagnosis who seem to be at some kind of heightened risk. Uh, The last time I talked to some experts on this, they said that their guesses are uh, no better than 50-50 of who's going to go on to commit an act of violence. And and that's defined as any act of violence, a simple assault hitting someone, uh, not these kind of needle in a haystack mass shooting sort of events. So any rhetoric that is trying to blame this problem on on problems with mental health is really a distraction from uh, what the real causes are. And I think any solution that focuses on fixing the mental health system, while I think it could have a lot of other ancillary
ancillary benefits for public health and for the quality of people's life probably is not going to entirely solve this problem that we have in this country. And the the mental health community pushed back really hard on this, right, Alice? You're nodding. Yes. Um, this was so timely, but the National Council for Behavioral Health put out a big report this week about causes of mass violence, and they were saying that all of the rhetoric claiming that there is a strong correlation between mental health and acts of mass violence stigmatizes people with mental health issues and uh, discourages them from seeking the help they really need. And the vast, vast majority um, of people with mental health problems are completely nonviolent. This kind of rhetoric that you're hearing from pundits and politicians implying that this is always or predominantly the cause is, is really damaging. And there are huge gaps in mental health care. Lots of people who need treatment do not get it. And so it's unfortunate that the most we talk about this is when there is a mass shooting. You also have to think about the prevalence of guns, the uh, ease, some may say, of getting guns, that the country's rate of gun ownership is a far better predictor, research has shown, of public mass shootings than indicators of mental illness. And as Margo's point is, this is a complicated problem. And we've had it for a while, and we know all the political perils about gun control and background checks and so on and so forth. But like any big problem in this country, it's going to have to be a bit of everything to work with it. But it's it's just terrible. We keep coming back to this over and over again. Well, the one policy uh, issue that that's come up repeatedly this week uh, is something called red flag laws. Those are state laws that let courts intervene to confiscate weapons or ban sales to people who've shown warning signs of impending violence against themselves or other. And I should interject here that that the vast majority of gun deaths are suicides, not homicides. Um, 17 states have these red flag laws. There's a bipartisan bill pending in Congress that would basically make it easier for states to put such laws in place. It's not going to be a federal thing. How much help would that sort of thing be? I think that we don't know the answer to that question in a satisfying way. Um, There are a few studies of these laws that have been in place for the longest. So those are the laws in Connecticut and in Indiana. And studies of both of those states showed that having these laws in place and having them be used, which I'll come back to, uh, result in a reduced number of suicide deaths. Uh, Those studies use some kind of complicated statistical inferences, but they're pretty well done. There are enough suicide deaths that you actually can measure a difference. And what they find is for about every 10 to 20 gun confiscations that occur as a result of this law, uh, you can eliminate one suicide death. That is a potentially significant public health effect of these laws, but it does not answer this question of whether these red flag laws are effective in preventing mass shootings. There are a few anecdotal accounts that some of the advocates for these laws like to mention of people who seem to be making particularly hyperbolic threats, uh, whose family members or who or in whose case, or police uh, used this process that allows it's a sort of temporary restraining order, similar to what happens when people are accused of domestic violence, removes their guns from them temporarily uh, while they can be stabilized or assessed. Uh, they do. There's a due process uh, component to this because there's a hearing. A judge has to decide whether it's appropriate. And those people do get their guns back. It's not like people who, uh, under the background check system, would no longer be eligible to ever have a gun. This is sort of you see someone in crisis, you can prevent them from having a gun for a short period of time. So I think there's some hope and suggestive evidence that maybe this could help people who are making serious threats of violence against other people 
But the evidence so far really is strongest for suicide prevention. And just one more thing about these laws that I think is important as we think about them in a federal context. It's not this law is different than a lot of other kinds of um, gun control laws in that just passing a law actually doesn't have a very big effect. If you think about how a law like this works, you need people in the community to know that the law exists, to understand how it works, and you need judges to be educated about it, and you need local police departments to be educated about how it works, and also to have processes set up for how are they going to find these people's guns, confiscate them, store them, uh, communicate with other local officials. And the evidence from both of these early states, from Indiana and Connecticut both, is that there were periods in which there was a lot of attention focused on this law, on getting the word out, and where there were a lot of hearings, there were a lot of these confiscations, and there were reductions in suicide. And then there were periods in which the law was sort of forgotten about and not discussed, not advocated for, and not used. And of course, then the public health impact was less. So I think this is why this is a difficult policy to think about at the federal level. If you kind of foist it on an unwilling state and they don't actually do the work of telling people that it exists, it may not work in the same way as in a place like California that has recently passed this law but is really doing a lot of robust outreach uh, and trying to make it work the best that it can. I think it's not clear if if this does pass in Congress how many states that don't have these laws already are even interested in going down that road whatsoever. Um, there is some significant amount of conservative opposition to this idea um, of temporarily removing people's guns. So it's unclear if this new sort of incentive grant um, proposal that Lindsey Graham is is uh, pushing in the Senate will even have an impact of encouraging more states to adopt these laws. But they'll be able to say they did something. Yes. and But it's not going nearly as far as what they were considering previously, which was some sort of federal red flag law system. Well, something else that Congress might be able to do uh, is fund gun violence research. Um, I covered the beginning of what ultimately became an effective ban on federally funded gun violence research, which was a provision included in the Department of Health and Human Services spending bill in 1995 and every year since, stating that no funds for the CDC's Injury Control Center, quote, may be used to advocate or promote gun control. While that didn't seem to outlaw all firearms injury research, it scared scientists enough that they basically stopped doing it. Uh, over the years and accelerating since the, the shooting of uh, school children at teachers in Newtown, Connecticut, the ban has been weakened somewhat. Um, where are we with it now? I know there's talk of actually funding this research. And, Marga, you've written about private gun research. I mean, you obviously there is some evidence, but, but this, this is a sort of an area of research considering how many injuries and deaths there are from firearms that's been really hindered over the past two decades. The House passed tens of millions in funding. I think it was about 50 million in funding for this research. Um, the Senate hasn't discussed it yet. And, um, you know, this, this budget agreement they just Which passed, is the next thing we're going to talk about. <laughs> leaves the door sort of open. It doesn't say either way. Um, so it, it remains to be seen if the, the Republican-controlled Senate is, is interested in approving this funding. They have not been in the past. With all of the recent acts of violence and demands for action, and the medical community is really mobilized on this question, especially on the research part, but also on the background checks part, and the hospital industry and everything thing, uh, doctors groups uh, have a lot of political influence. And so, you know, if if that is mobilized, then maybe this could go somewhere. Um, but yes, they say there really isn't a lot of good evidence. There's not even a good, accurate count of how many people are shot every year. We have no idea. We know how many people die from firearms, but we don't know how many people are shot and survive. 
Yeah. So it's my understanding they need a specific appropriation, yes. they being the CDC, to study this, right? Right. It's not banned anymore. It's not banned. But they don't have the money. Right. I think the intention of the House appropriators is to have, have a specifically earmarked right. mm-hmm. money for that purpose because we've seen, at least in this administration and in the last right. few, that mm-hmm. the CDC has declined to find the money out of general funds to pay for it. But you could see, to your uh, earlier point, several points that have been made here, yes, they may or may not get this so-called red flag law passed. We already hear Democrats pushing, no, we can't just do that. We've got to do greater background checks. This could be kind of another place they go to say, all right, we can't agree on these other issues, background checks, red flag laws, this kind of thing, but let's go ahead and fund some money, do a study, right? That's a typical congressional answer. <laughs> commission, study. That's right. They like studies. They like they studies. They used to like studies. That's right. Maybe we'll have but a But also they say that you need data to inform policy. I mean, exactly they right. say we, we actually don't know if, for instance, creating gun-free zones on balance makes a big difference. We don't know um, if red flag laws, you know, for more like of homicides make a big difference. So they're saying that, yes, funding a study seems sort of like a more passive kind of right. approach, but it could inform real action. Well, particularly in this case where there just haven't been very many right. studies, uh, sure. uh, uh, at least. The well, analogy that's been made to me by some of the advocates for this funding that I have found interesting and compelling is to um, highway safety. So there are uh, deaths due to car accidents and deaths due to guns are roughly equivalent uh, right now in this country. Really? But... Um, Deaths due to cars used to be much, much higher, and there was a coordinated effort to try to figure out what to do about that, and that involved a lot of funding for the National Highway Safety Administration. Administration. And what happens now is every time there's a car crash, the police fill out a very detailed form that goes into a federal database that answers all sorts of questions, including things you might not think about, like what's the make and model of the car? What was the weather? Was it light or dark? What was the uh, landscaping around the road? Uh, you know, is it near an intersection? Was there an animal involved? Were there pedestrians? What has happened over the years is that that data system that is so robust and that includes information about basically every single car accident has led to a lot of really interesting public safety insights. And so we've had a very robust public policy effort around trying to reduce road fatalities that has included things like changing the design around roads, apparently certain highway beautification campaigns that put a lot of trees near highways those increased uh, road fatalities. So even though they were beautiful, those were removed. It made roads safer. You guys know about like the rumble strips on the side. Sure. So they were able to study and found that those actually were pretty effective. They reduced fatalities. Um, s- uh, states and local governments passed a lot of uh, laws banning drunk driving because it turned out that alcohol was a really major risk factor for road fatalities. They were able to identify, I guess, 20 or 30 years ago that certain cars with a high center of gravity and certain kinds of tires were involved in these rollover accidents that led to a lot of fatalities, that led them to go back to the manufacturer and have redesigns of the cars themselves that made them safer. So I can go on and on, but what it shows is that when you have a major public health problem that's killing so many Americans every year, uh, it can be really enormously helpful to have a lot of this kind of federally collected standardized data that enables researchers to find patterns. And you could imagine that a really robust response to gun violence deaths might uh, be similar. And if we had a lot of information about 
all the shootings, fatal and non-fatal, that are happening everywhere around the country, there might be a whole range of different solutions that we haven't thought of. You know, some of the things that we talk about a lot in Washington, like background checks and now these red flag laws, but maybe some even some product safety innovations around the guns themselves or storage. There are so many things that we don't know because we don't have robust data. But I will just stick up for the gun research community because even though it is true that the CDC has not been funding this research, there are there is a community of really serious and dedicated researchers who have been working on this issue for a long time and who have published a lot of research and who have enhanced our knowledge of what kinds of public policies could reduce gun deaths. And there has been a recent explosion, I would argue, in state and private funding for gun research. So I think the CDC is uniquely poised to do this kind of national data collection that would be difficult for these smaller uh, research institutes to take on. But there is a lot of new funding for work, and there are a lot of young researchers who are entering this field now who haven't in the past. And so I do think that we're going to have more insight in the coming years into how to reduce gun deaths than we've had in the past. All right. Well, I think we need to move on. Um, uh, just before the Senate left for recess last week, it passed and sent to the president a two-year budget deal. This actually has a lot more to do with health than it would first appear. Uh, it mostly lifts the budget caps imposed in a 2011 deal that would have cut deeply into what we in Washington call domestic discretionary spending on things like, well, gun violence research at the CDC and everything else at the CDC and the National Institutes of Health and the FDA and most health programs that are not named Medicare or Medicaid or CHIP. Um, how big a deal is this deal? I know people, particularly in Washington, use the word budget. And unfortunately, budget is kind of a term of art on Capitol Hill. It means a lot of different things. So so what is some people have been saying that this budget deal means that there won't there can't be a shutdown. That's not quite how it works, right? They Alice. still have to pass the appropriations bills. Right, exactly. Um, but this does ensure that there's not a debt ceiling crisis, which right. there was which set, it also set did. up to be. So in two years, there could be another one. So Just when the, the, it, the next president or the current president right. is reelected is like... So kicking the can down the road um, a bit, but avoiding a lot of major cuts that could have happened so, um, so are you to really, health programs it, This budget others. deal will make it easier to pass the appropriations, but they still have to pass the appropriations. And, and you still have to decide yes. who gets what in the deal. Right. You've got the top line mm-hmm. number, but what are the specific, I hate to use an acronym, I think it's the 302Bs, I remember my appropriation days, who gets what from which bill. Then you've got to work on, you know, they have this handshake, there'll be no poison pills. But as we know, sometimes, every, I mean, every member has their own opinion and they have their mm-hmm. own vote. So they may want to go along with the leaders, the deal their leaders cut, they may not. So there's still a lot of time between now and September 30th for things to go maybe in a different direction. Well, so something else the budget deal did was cement into place some of the policy riders that often populate spending bills, which, as Mac points out, sometimes are considered poison pills. Um, things like banning funds from being used to build a border wall or, more pertinent to our discussion, ending efforts to take out of the bill the high amendment that bans most federal abortion fundings. Um, Now, they weren't going to have the votes to do this in the Senate anyway, and even if they did, the president wouldn't have signed it. So does taking Hyde repeal off the table help or hurt Democrats? Certainly every presidential candidate is saying they want to get rid of Hyde, but it's, it's, at least in the current Congress, it's not very realistic. I thought it was interesting that Republicans were loudly declaring victory here when the House was not planning on passing Hyde repeal, even with strong... Right. The bill's been through... Democratic majority. (laughs) Yes. Um, They were planning on doing other things. They were planning... The House did vote to, um, for instance, overturn the president's 
rule regarding Title X funding uh, for Planned Parenthood and other clinics. So that was an effort in the House that is also now not going to be part of this budget deal. But it's interesting that Republicans were more lifting up the fact that the Hyde Amendment, the long-standing ban on federal funding for abortions, is is being preserved when that what the there wasn't really a chance of that going any other way. Yes, and and basically that decision had already been made. Yes. That, I mean they weren't even going to. There was a there was sort of an argument about whether to have a vote on the House floor, and then in the end they just didn't. Right. And they may decide to fight that another day, right? I mean, mm-hmm. if, if you, in fact, if Democrats were to get the White House, were to get the Senate back, were to keep the House, they could revisit this. But speaking of, of – and Alice raised this thing a point earlier, you know, they've lifted the debt ceiling now for two years. But that means the next president is going to inherit this huge mess potentially that they have to deal with in the first few months of their administration. So – you kick the can down the road, you, you relieve the pressure for now, but and if a Democrat wins the White House, they're going to run square right back into all this mess again. Would, although or I would, a Republican, either one, beg your pardon, if I, the president I would, were elected. I was interested, though, to see Mitch McConnell saying that, that he didn't think that the, the debt ceiling should be held hostage, which is basically the, the ability of the federal government to pay its bills and not... But often second. people's uh, perspective on that question changed depending who is the president. Exactly. So we shall see. It's also yeah. havoc with the markets. I mean, you're just asking for trouble if you don't do that. We, we came so. very close in 2011 to defaulting. Uh, and I think that chastened people who were here at the time. But a lot of people in 2019 were not the same people who were here in 2011. So, All right. Well, next, I want to follow up briefly on the conversation we had last week about the possibility of drug importation from Canada. In case you forgot, the Trump administration issued basically an invitation for states and pharmacies and even drug companies to put forward plans to bring price-controlled products from up north, except now Canada is, to put it bluntly, kind of freaking out about this. (laughs) What is happening here? As we talked about on the podcast before, this is not a way of taking on the price of drugs in the U.S. directly. This is a backdoor way benefiting, you know, coasting off of Canada's more stringent policies and the the work the government there has done to negotiate lower prices and sort of benefit off of that Importing their price controls. Exactly. Without touching our own policies or setting up any price controls of our own. And so in Canada, they're freaked out that um, this might cause shortages, either just because of the availability of the drugs or because there's a real fear that the corporations could create shortages on purpose uh, because they would rather get the higher U.S. government um, sale rate than the lower Canadian. Yeah, we should point out these are mostly U.S. drug companies. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And, you know, it used to be we used to call this re-importation because most of the, the drugs were actually made in the U.S., sent to the other countries and then brought back. Although these days most Drugs are not made in the U.S. anymore. They're made in various Abroad, places yeah. offshore, yeah, um, you know, in either in, in Puerto Rico, or well, which is part of the U.S., but also in other countries. A lot of drug manufacturing happens in Ireland because apparently there are tax benefits to doing that. But but in any case, these are these are mostly U.S. and European countries. They're not we're not buying Canadian-made drugs uh, from Canada. We're buying drugs that Canada has imported from elsewhere, and and. and I, I mean, I guess that's one benefit to this being a very modest pilot project is that you can sort of test the waters and see how much havoc this wreaks before going all the way on a more robust importation plan. Um, but it also, uh, because it's just a tiny pilot project, won't 
necessarily benefit that many people. I just think it's a natural thing that would happen if you're trying to. I mean, we've we've all written stories about this municipality is allowing for their state workers, for example, right, to import drugs from Canada. Or we did a story about these storefronts in Florida where people can come in and get their drugs or somebody taking a bus of Medicare beneficiaries into Canada. But when you start formalizing it, even with a pilot, you elevate the discussion and the Canadian government and interests are kind of looking. They want to make sure that their own folks are taken care of first. So it's one of those ongoing discussions. I keep reminding people that there are fewer people in the entire country of Canada than there are in California. So (laughs) it's geographically large, but it doesn't actually have that large a population. Mm -hmm. So, all right. Well, last up this week, there is still a lot of confusion around the status of the new Title X family planning rules that are supposed to bar abortion referrals. They're in effect, sort of, and a number of clinics, not just Planned Parenthoods, have said they won't take any more federal money because it would be unethical for them to abide by the new rules. Alice, you wrote a really crazy story about how this means these clinics might have to literally throw away millions of dollars worth of contraception products, really? Yes. And it was a surprise not only to us, but to the very clinics who are making these decisions right now. And a lot of it is sort of in a wait and see mode because of pending federal court cases about this. But yes, this is the intersection of two different federal programs that are creating this mess. So it's the 340B program where these clinics can buy drugs at a discounted rate. Like and we've talked about 340B. <laughs> yes. And so a lot of these family planning clinics get a lot of their um, drugs through that program, you know, especially things like IUDs that are, you know, Expensive. have a really high upfront cost. And they are also getting this federal Title X funding. So now there are all these new restrictions on the federal Title X funding. Because of opposition to the new Trump rules, a lot of the clinics that are part of this program are saying, we are refusing to be a part of this right now. But in leaving the Title X program, they can no longer use the drugs they purchase at a discounted rate for the Title X program. So a lot of the clinics that are still in a wait-and-see mode, there's just sort of like boxing them off and not touching them. They can't give them to patients. Others that are formally withdrawing from Title X are making plans to get rid of it or to ask uh, the Trump administration for some kind of accommodation um, to be able to like purchase it back at some other rate or do something. <laughs> they can't even like give them to other Title X uh, clinics, right? Not necessarily. But again, if they, they could ask HRSA for the agency for some sort of special permission accommodation. But it's just mass confusion right now. So many clinics don't even didn't even know about this requirement until our story went out. Um, we're, we're still talking to folks that aren't sure because they are also approved for 340B through other programs that are not Title X, if that means they can keep their drugs. So there's just uh, across the country, just mass confusion right now at these clinics. So if they're a federally qualified health center, for example, they might be able to keep them or if they deal with uh, sexually well, transmitted rules, disease clinics. The rules say they can't transfer stuff that was purchased through one 340B designation okay. to a different program under 340B. So if they, even even if, if they we, bought it for Title X purposes, <laughs> but they're also approved through 340B to be like an STI clinic, right. which is a separate program. The sexually transmitted. You yeah. can't um, you can't ha- just hand it over without some sort of special permission from 
from Washington. <laughs> I would think there would, to your point, too, there'd be some accommodation made, grandfathered or something. Materials obtained by this point may be used, but not further. It sounds nice. It just to seems me. like such a. I mean, I can't imagine that either Democrats or Republicans would think that this is anything that's except kind of a huge waste of money. Losing the 340B um, access could be an even bigger blow to the clinics than losing right. the Title X funding. The money they save through these discounted drug purchasing programs, especially for things like IUDs that cost many hundreds of dollars each, um, I mean, it, it could be even even worse for them than losing the Title X funding. I see a line item in an appropriations bill, don't you? <laughs> to kind of take care of this quickly, easily. Except no riders under <laughs> the budget deal. But yeah, one could argue that this is a writer. Anyway. Yeah, that's it's a true. nerdy academic discussion. But yes. anyway, nonetheless. <laughs> which, which is going back to the original point that they are still spending bills that they have to finish. Exactly. Even, even though we got a quote unquote budget deal. All right. Well, that is the news for this week. Now it is time for our extra credit segment. That's where we each suggest a story we read the past week we think others should read too. Don't worry if you miss it. We will post the links to these stories on the podcast page at khn.org slash what the health. Margo, why don't you start this week? Uh, sure. I wanted to recommend a blog post in the blog Balloon Juice by uh, David Anderson called The Upcoming Strange Politics of the ACA. And uh, what David did that I thought was really smart is he took a look at the early rate filings for next year's exchanges. Uh, so these are preliminary filings. They're not everywhere. They're not final, blah, 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 all those caveats. But basically looks like for a second year in a row, premiums are going to be more or less flat. There's not going to be big premium increases. Uh, and then he also looked at some recent filings about something called medical loss ratios from last year's insurance products. And that has to do with the number. So for every dollar that the insurance company gets in premium, how much of it was spent on medical care versus administration and profits. And the Affordable Care Act says that for an individual market plan, the medical loss ratio has to be around 80 percent. Uh, the insurance company can't keep more than 20 percent for overhead and profits. And if they do, then they have to refund the money back to their customers. And what they're finding is that Lots and lots of companies are going to have to rebate money back to their customers because they overestimated how much it was going to cost to provide their medical care. And the policy backdrop for this, of course, is the medical uh, sorry, is the uh, cost sharing reduction payments, which uh, President Trump reversed uh, in a kind of precipitous way going into the 2017 going to the 2018, 2018 plan here. Sorry. And then the looming repeal of the individual mandate, which happened uh, later, that there was just a lot of uncertainty. And what happened is that the insurance companies kind of jacked the premiums way up for that year. It turns out that uh, they really didn't need to do that. And so a lot of people are going to get refunds. And uh, what, what David is arguing in this post is just that it's going to be a really weird fall because there's not going to be big premium increases. Lots of people are going to be getting checks back. And how is that going to change the way people feel about the Affordable Care Act going into the election? I know. It's just, I mean, nobody predicted. Uh, that now, I, now I don't make any predictions anymore. The idea that they could, you know, that we're seeing this court case where they're saying, well, the, the individual mandate penalty was the linchpin of the whole law. Well, now it's gone. And the law seems to be settling in quite nicely, or at least that part of the law. Right. Which is, I mean, there are more uninsured people than there, are. there used to be. But 
there are lots of factors for that. Yeah, and this this doesn't seem to be a, a huge one, although it's true. I mean, a lot of people dropped out when the premiums went up. So, you know, the people who stuck it out will be getting rebates, but there are people who either, you know, went without insurance or, or bought some other kind of not very comprehensive insurance. So. There are also, we've talked about this before, and we should talk about this again in, in more detail, but there are some interesting effects of having the premiums go up by less because so many people in this market are getting federal subsidies to help them buy their plans. Uh, they don't necessarily benefit uh, when the premiums don't get up because there are these complex formulas uh, that dictate, you know, how much their subsidy is going to be relative to their premium. So we always talk about these premiums, and they are important because people who pay the full price have to pay the full price, and also because the government is paying a portion of those premiums. But for individual people in this market, uh, those numbers are not as salient as you might think. And I will leave it to you to explain it when the time comes. <laughs> Alice. <laughs> So I have a piece uh, from Governing Magazine, which we just learned is shutting down, which is very sad. They do really great work, and I hope all the reporters there get snapped up by other publications because they're very talented. Um, so this piece is by Alan Greenblatt. It's called America Has a Healthcare Crisis in Prisons, and it's taking a look at a very bleak picture uh, of healthcare in prisons where um, most states have private companies, private for-profit companies um, contracted to provide this care. And just this piece goes into detail about how the incentives of having for-profit private companies in prisons and very few companies competing for these contracts is just leading to all of these unnecessary deaths, um, companies trying to cut costs wherever they can, spending uh, as little on providing care as possible um, because, um, you know, the the states themselves don't have a lot of choice for what provider they're going to go to because there's only a few companies doing this work. And the prisoners themselves obviously have no choice whatsoever. And so you don't get uh, what you get outside <laughs> the civilian world where uh, if you don't like one uh provider, you can switch. Um, so it, it's a very sad picture and um, maybe we'll prompt some some policy thoughts to, to address it. Mary Agnes. Uh, my story comes from the Washington Post. Uh, proponents of stricter gun control face a reality check in the Senate. It's written by Paul Kane, a longtime congressional observer. And he kind of gets to it right the first paragraph. Supporters of a universal of universal background checks for gun purchases face a daunting reality in their demand for a snap Senate roll call. They don't have the votes. Not even close. <laughs> you have just two Republican senators. I think it's Patrick Toomey, Pennsylvania, Susan Collins of Maine that have supported expanded background checks. And I think Senator Toomey has worked with Senator Manchin on a bill, which is now not deemed as sufficient. And the House has passed a bill that is stronger in some the eyes of some supporters than that bill. So it's a long road ahead. Stay tuned. All right. Well, mine is also from the Washington Post. It's by our podcast mate, Paige Winfield Cunningham. And it's called 2020 Democrats are fighting over universal health care details. Voters may not want that. It's basically a continuation of our conversation from last week's show where we talked about how candidates did a lot more to confuse than to educate voters in the debates, except now we have public opinion to back that up. According to a new survey from the Urban Institute, most respondents are literally ambivalent about the leading idea 
ideas for boosting health insurance coverage. Pluralities, and in some cases majorities, said, quote, they neither support nor oppose ideas including boosting subsidies to lower costs, Medicare for all, and a public option, said the study's author John Hollihan. For a whole lot of people, this is pretty mysterious stuff indeed, and to blow our own horn a little, that's at least why we're here. So on that note of self-congratulations, that is our show for this week. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We'd appreciate it if you left a review. That helps other people find us too. And before we go today, we say goodbye to our most exemplary associate producer, Caitlin Hilliard. Caitlin literally got us up and running 110 episodes ago and is responsible for your ability to access the podcast from so many different platforms. Caitlin is off to graduate school and we will miss her, but we're also pretty sure that she will someday save the world. Also, as usual, you can email us your comments or questions. This is the last call for questions for our Ask Us Anything show next week. Let us know what you want us to explain. We're at what the health, all one word, at kff.org. Or you can tweet me. I'm at Jay Rovner. At Sanger Katz. At Alice Olstein. At Mary Agnes Carey. We'll be back in your feed next week. In the meantime, be healthy. Be healthy.